Metaphysics is a dark ocean without shores or lighthouse, strewn with many a philosophic wreck. Immanuel Kant Welcome everybody to the podcast, Two Guys Searching for Truth on the Road That Never Ends. I'm Credo, and my co-host is Glaucon. We both invite you to take historical ideas within their context along with us, examine the thinkers and the timeless ideas they provide to us. These ideas are as relevant today as they were back then. It's our hope and our belief that in doing so would bring us closer to the truth. Just note that the views expressed by the host do not in any way reflect the personal views of the hosts themselves. All right, let's do this. So tonight we're going to talk about the symposium, and this is a dialogue which is told by a person who had attended the party, which we'll get into in a second, to another person who wanted to hear about what happened. And initially it seems like it was a pretty contemporary thing that had happened recently, but it actually had happened a long time ago. And so what happens is Apollodorus is walking, and I believe he's actually walking from the Piraeus to Athens, which is something that we've already talked about when we talked about book one in the Republic. But so he's walking towards Athens, and he's going to repeat the dialogue that he had heard from Aristodemus, and he's already told it to Glaucon in the past, but now another person wants to hear about it. And so the guy catching him up, which is also similar to book one in the Republic, the guy is catching him up and says, Apollodorus, O thou Palerian, halt. And so what he means by Falerian is uh, baldy, like a guy that's bald. So it's kind of like a put down, right? So he catches him up, calls him baldy. And then he says, I want to ask you about the speeches in praise of love, which were delivered by Socrates, Alcibiades, and others at Agathon's supper. So basically what happened was there was a party the night before and everybody drank a massive amount of alcohol. So they woke up and they were all hung over and they were getting ready to start partying again. And then some of them were like, look, we're too hung over to really drink. We shouldn't be drinking a lot like that. It's not healthy. My physician told me that you shouldn't drink in excess successively like that. It's not good for you. And and I'm not feeling good. I don't feel like drinking heavily. Maybe some of us do, but I certainly don't. And so they kind of had this conversation and they decided that they would talk about sex and love because it's kind of the next best thing to, to drinking wine with your friends, right? So they decided to have a conversation or at least let everybody that was there kind of say their piece and talk about what they thought about the nature of sex to some extent and love more importantly, actually. Although the concept of talking about sex is so tantalizing that I think people's minds generally go there when they think about the symposium and when they read the symposium, at least initially. But after you've reflected on the symposium for a while, you start to realize that the sexual aspect is really not as significant as it might appear to be. But nonetheless, it is a conversation that involves sex to some extent because it is part of what we think of when we talk about love. And that's certainly true today as much as it was back then. Uh, these things are kind of connected. And the nature of sexuality certainly comes up in the symposium because there is a discussion of male and female love as well as male and male love. So there is a lot of 
conversation about the nature of what we today would maybe call homosexuality, but I don't think it really captures the nature of things back then because it's such a loaded term today and there are so many ideas that we connect to it. So it's, I think, better to stay more open-minded than that. But so to kind of start us off, he says, are you ignorant? So when the guy asks him about this party, when did this party happen? And he says, are you ignorant that for many years, Agathon has not resided in Athens? So that means that this person's moved away a long time ago where the party occurred. And then he tells him that it actually occurred when I was a young man. So he was a young person at the time. And at the symposium, we know that there's an interaction between Alcibiades and Socrates. And Alcibiades was tutored by Socrates when he was young. So probably just a guess, I would say Socrates was probably 50 at the time of the symposium. And he had been to war with Alcibiades and lackeys on a few occasions. And Alcibiades actually was rescued by Socrates at one point, which we might bring up later. But he, he rescues him from the battlefield. And Alcibiades also talks about how Socrates and lackeys fought together. And if you remember, when we talked about courage and the lackeys in one of our earlier episodes. Lackeys talked about Socrates' courage. So it comes up again in the, in, this, in the symposium. So they decide to walk and talk on the road back up to Athens. And this is interesting because Aristotle later has the peripatetic school, which is named peripatetic because they were known to, Aristotle was known to walk and talk. So he, he would actually lecture while walking and the students would walk along with him because Aristotle felt that it was good for the mind and good for philosophy to move while you're doing philosophy, which is an interesting idea. But so we see a kind of foreshadowing of that here in Plato. So he says, for to speak or to hear others speak of philosophy always gives me the greatest pleasure to say nothing of the prophet. So then he starts telling about the, the party. He says, you know, he was going to the party with Socrates and some other guys. And so they're heading towards the house, towards Agathon's house. And all of a sudden they look around and Socrates isn't around anymore. And so what happened was that Socrates, what, 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 what Plato says is he dropped behind in a fit of abstraction. So this is an interesting statement, right? A fit of abstraction. It isn't until kind of halfway into the feast that Socrates reappears and he kind of was absent by himself and they, they were kind of arguing about whether or not to send a servant to go get him while he was in this fit of abstraction and to bother him or not. And, you know, some people are saying we should go get him and then other people are saying, no, leave him alone. He likes to do this every once in a while. He doesn't want to be disturbed. So what exactly is happening with this, these fits of abstraction? It's mentioned again later on in the symposium, so we should just talk about it a little bit. Basically, it's impossible to know exactly, but it I believe it's something like meditation because basically he, he stops talking and doesn't move and he's in a standing position. So, so standing meditation is not usually talked about in Buddhism where the two forms of meditation are sitting and walking. But in Chinese systems, standing meditation is very prevalent actually. It's very, very common and it's martial. It's a military exercise and actually in the West we still have it, right, because we stand at attention. So when soldiers stand at attention, whether they're guarding a palace or whether they're under their superior at the time, they're actually doing standing meditation because they can't talk. They have to stay still. And if their mind wanders, it's more difficult. 
to stand at attention. So you actually, you can read Western discussions of standing at attention and it discusses how you have to hold your mind to be able to do it. And so this is something like, I think what Socrates was doing. And that'll make more sense when we go further into the symposium and Alcibiades talks about Socrates because he talks about him on the battlefield and when they were camping and how Socrates did standing meditation at that time too. But so, Socrates took his place on the couch and slept with the rest, and then libations were offered. And after him had been sung to the god, and there had been the usual ceremonies, they were about to commence drinking, when Pausanias said, And now, my friends, how can we drink with least injury to ourselves? I can assure you that I feel severely affected of yesterday's potations, and must have time to recover, and suspect that most of you are in the same predicament, for you were at the party yesterday. Consider then, how can the drinking be made easiest? So then they decide, right? They don't really want to drink like they did the night before. So then they decide to talk about love. And then speaking about love, he says, So entirely has the great deity been neglected. Now in this Phaedrus seems to me to be quite right. And therefore I want to offer him a contribution. Also, I think that at the present moment, we who are here assembled cannot do better than honor the God of love. If you agree with me, there will be no lack of conversation. For I mean to propose that each of us in turn, going from left to right, shall make a speech in honor of love. Let him give us the best which he can. And Phaedrus, because he is sitting first on the left hand, and because he is the father of the thought, shall begin. So since it was his idea to do this, and he is the first person to the left, he can start. So then Phaedrus is going to begin. Yeah, and Phaedrus, he was an Athenian aristocrat, as well as a friend of Socrates. And his argument starts off by affirming that love is a mighty god, and wonderful among gods and men, but especially wonderful in its birth. He then says, for he is the eldest of the gods, which is an honor to him. And a proof of his claim to this honor is that of his parents, there is no memorial. Neither poet nor prose writer has ever affirmed that he had any. As Hesiod says, quote, first chaos came and then broad bosomed earth, the everlasting seat of all that is and love. So in other words, he says, after chaos, the earth and love, these two came into being so the importance about this is he's making an argument that the god of love, Eros, is the first or the oldest of gods. And he goes on to say that thus numerous are the witnesses who acknowledge love to be the eldest of gods. And so he doesn't see him just as the eldest, but also as the source of the greatest benefits to us. He then says, for I know not any greater blessing to a young man who is beginning life than a virtuous lover or to the lover than a beloved youth. For the principle which ought to be the guide of men who would nobly live, that principle, I say, is neither kindred, nor honor, nor wealth, nor any other motive is able to implant so well as love. Again, love is the greatest thing that anyone can receive. And if you think about this, even within our own lives, there is some real truth to this. I mean, you think about the value or the thing which gives you the most ambition or the most motivation or you know the things that we always say the things that people would do for love it's just really interesting how it is true that there aren't many you know even if you think about statues you just don't see that many statues gifted to the god of love or made in the remembrance of the god of love in comparison to others and then as he goes on he says quote a lover who is detected in doing any dishonorable act will be more pained at being detected by his beloved than at being seen by his father or by his companions or by anyone else. And so this is a notion to being caught doing something dishonorable by one's lover hurts the most. 
And again, this shows just the power that love can have on us. And in some ways, it rings really true. You know, we say the first cut is the deepest, right? This all goes back to the power of love. It goes back to that this God should be seen as one of the most powerful of all because there's no other emotion or no other God that we can think of that's crafted or, or created for that emotion that can have that kind of effect on us. No, that's right. Absolutely right. And then one thing to bring up too is that it was pretty common for older men who were wise and had lived a long life and had something to contribute to a younger person would take on a younger person as a student and basically form a relationship with that person. And a lot of the discussion in the symposium is talking about those kinds of relationships where you've got a person learning from another person and then them loving each other. So this is going to lead into the later discussion that Socrates is going to have about the nature of love. And the important thing to remember here is that this kind of orients knowledge and intellect and wisdom into the picture and connects it to this idea of loving, right? And loving other people. And then, as you said, right, the first cut is the deepest, these kinds of ideas we've all loved, right? And we've all been loved. And we know how painful it can be. And we know how pleasurable it can be to, to yeah. be, you know, in either, either situation. One other thing to add that I thought was really interesting is he mentions this idea that those who love are more loved by the gods. And he explains the story of Achilles and how he was told by his mother that he could return home, he could live to an old age if he would just abstain from slaying Hector. But uh, he slayed him anyway to revenge the loss of his friend and he was killed. And when he died, the gods honored him greatly. And so there was this quote that says, Eros will make men dare to die for their beloved, for love alone and women as well as, as men. And this is interesting because again, you see Plato re-emphasizing this notion through others, right? Through the words of others of equality between men and women. But it also shows, as you're mentioning, this universal principle of love that all have loved, all can experience it, be hurt by it and benefit by it. But there's also this notion that if you love, then the gods can love you more, which kind of alludes to the notion in at least Platonic philosophy that love is part of the good or it's something that you participate in the good by experiencing love. No, it's absolutely right. And it is interesting. The Iliad is a very interesting story. Obviously, it was the one of the main pillars of ancient Greek education was working through the Iliad. And we mentioned before that Aristotle had given Alexander the Great a copy of the Iliad that he had personally kind of like corrected or something along those lines. But so the story of Achilles and Hector and Patroclus and the love that Achilles had for his friend is interesting because that's in the Iliad. At the same time, the whole reason for the war, right, is also love of a woman and that woman being taken. So the core cause of the war that destroys Troy is relationship problem, basically. <laughs> and then the other big problem happening in, in the Iliad is Achilles not wanting to obey his ruler, his king, right? He doesn't want to obey his king because his king took one of the women that Achilles had won in battle from him. And he really liked this woman that he had won in battle and basically fell in love with her. And then the king took her away. And so, so now we've got a situation where we've got these two male-female relationships having a pretty powerful role in the Iliad. And then we also have this love 
that Achilles has for his uh, best friend, basically, right? And these are all things that humans experience, right? So we've all had best friends when we're young. We've all had relationships, loves, and these are powerful human experiences. And it's interesting that in the Iliad, they are basically what everything else is revolving around in the universe, in a sense. Absolutely. So in addition to what he's saying, how does Pausanias add to this? What Pausanias says, he says, is that now actions vary according to the manner of their performances. Take, for example, that which we are now doing, drinking, singing, and talking. These actions are not in themselves either good or evil, but they turn out this or that way according to the mode of performing them. And when well done, they are good, and when wrongly done, they are evil. And in like manner, not every love, but only that which is a noble purpose, is noble and worthy of praise. So this is interesting. For, for one thing, the language of this starts to sound like uh, platonic dialogue, because we're digging into the nature of love and when it's good and when it's not good and what is good and what is not good there. And so we're trying to get at the essence or the nature of this in a more clear way. And then the interesting point, right, is that when you love correctly, it's a noble and praiseworthy thing, right? So the love who is the offspring of the common Aphrodite is essentially common and has no discrimination, being such as the meaner sort of men feel. And it says, and it's apt to be of women as well as youths, and it is of the body rather than of the soul. So here we started off with this discussion, and then Pausanias is coming in and he's saying, well, it's not so fast, right? Because you could be talking about a variety of things here. And so this goes back to what we started with earlier. Are we talking about sex or are we talking about love? And that goes back to the Iliad, right? When we're talking about Achilles and Hector, are we talking about sex or are we talking about love? Well, Arguments have been made on both sides there, right? And so here we see Pausanias saying, and Plato basically saying through Pausanias, that if love is directed at merely the body, then that's a kind of base or mean expression of love. And if it's directed towards the soul, that's a higher level of love. And so what do we mean if, if we're directing love at the soul? That means we're loving the person for their mind, right? Or we're loving the person for their character. So it's a pretty, very different thing, really, in its expression, although the nature of it may be very similar and related, right? So then he goes on to say, and is of the body rather than of the soul. The most foolish beings are the objects of this love, which desires only to gain an end, but never thinks of accomplishing the end nobly, and therefore does good and evil quite indiscriminately. So you want something you have a deep desire for it, a sexual desire, let's say, then you could do all kinds of bad things to attain that. And, and that certainly wouldn't be good. Right? So then he goes on to say, those who are inspired by this love turn to the male and delight in him who is the more valiant. So talking about the higher form. Those who are inspired by this love turn to the male and delight in him who is more valiant and intelligent in nature. Anyone may recognize a pure enthusiast in the very character of their attachments. For they love not boys, but intelligent beings whose reason is beginning to be developed, much about the time at which their beards begin to grow. So here, this is important, right? Because we were talking about this earlier, that there are these relationships which occur between older men and younger men. And lots of people look at this and say, well, oh, ancient Greece, they were, they were pedophiles. And I mean, that is, I think, true in a sense, because this discussion right here is saying that these relationships shouldn't be physical in nature but they were often physical in nature. 
But Plato argues that they shouldn't be physical in nature, and that what you should be loving in a young person when you're instructing that person is that person's mind and their potential to be good and to be virtuous and to be great. So these are pretty, I mean, pretty controversial and interesting ideas. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's a couple interesting points. Obviously, it's slowly getting more and more specific as we go just from generally love and the God of love is the greatest of all because it permeates through all aspects of our life to there's a sort of good love and a bad love. I think one thing that stood out to me in thinking about that is when he starts saying that love is neither good or bad, it kind of depends on whether you're doing it nobly or not nobly. It makes me think of it's kind of a neutral act. And that's not something we would normally describe of to be associated with a god in some sort of way, right? You think about how, because again, they're talking about Eros, right? The gods. So when you think about that, normally we think gods are good. And so it's just interesting that he would split that up. No, that's right. And then he goes on to say some interesting things. He says, but the love of young boys should be forbidden by law because their future is uncertain. They may turn out good or bad, either in body or soul, and much noble enthusiasm may be thrown away upon them. So that's a pretty interesting statement, right? Because he's saying it should be forbidden by law, but then the reasoning for why it should be forbidden by law seems a little bit tortured and somewhat strange. And then they go on and say other things like, the coarser sort of lovers ought to be restrained by force. So this sounds like it's like our society today, right? Where we do restrain the coarser sort of lovers by restraint of force, right? We put them in jail and we make them register as sex offenders. So we do that today and it seems like Plato is talking about something like that here but it's not so clear because the language is a little strange in terms of what's supporting that idea but then we'll just go on a little bit from there and therefore the ill repute into which these attachments have fallen is to be ascribed to the evil conditions of those who make them to be ill reputed that is to say to the self-seeking of the governors and the cowardice of the governed on the other hand the indiscriminate honor which is given to them in some countries is attributable to the laziness of those who hold this opinion of them. In our own country, a far better principle prevails. But as I was saying, the explanation of it is rather perplexing. For observe that open lovers are held to be more honorable than secret ones, and that the love of the noblest and the highest, even if their persons are less beautiful than others, is especially honorable. So a couple things to say there. One thing to say is there are different rules in different countries, different ways of looking at this in different places. And that was as true in the times of ancient Greece as it is today. And I have seen some pretty surprising things in terms of sexuality and how people think about this stuff. When I've traveled, I've been shocked at times. And because it's, that's not how we do it where I'm from. And so there is a kind of relativism, right? That applies, I think, to sexuality, human sexuality. And it's a very intimate, obviously, part of ourselves a sacred part of ourselves, a part of human being that is not always or not often shown to everyone else around us. We keep it very private and it's a part of us that can be harmed in a very powerful way, which is pretty obvious by how we place it in our legal situation, in our legal system, the way we think about it in our legal system is evidence of that and also the way that religion deals with sexuality is evidence of the power of sexuality and the kind of very personal and private way that it is something we relate to individually to ourselves and with the people that are closest to us.
So it's uh, definitely a serious topic. <laughs> so is there a take on this, though, that the relativist kind of angle that you're mentioning isn't so much from the nature of love or sexuality itself, but really a reflection of the fact that the people who decide the laws or rules around sexuality are often those in positions of power. Because, you know, when you think about this, this is an individual sort of feeling, love or sexuality, that's a very individual kind of thing. And so when you have a top-down approach with governments or religions or whatever, kind of dictating that for huge masses at a time, right? Doesn't that kind of show you that maybe maybe there is a little more universality to it than what we observe because certainly we do know that throughout history almost in every cultural context at some point in time you know we see whether it be homosexuality whether it be you know all sorts of different uh, older and younger relationships right we see these things pretty universally the only thing that's not universal are those in power which are deciding whether or not they will tolerate that in their certain society but not whether or not it naturally occurs Right. It is, it is very interesting. And then, and it's also mentioned, right, in what we were just reading a second ago, that it involves the govern, the governors and the governed, right, which is what you're saying, right? So the thing about human sexuality, right, is that it's a, it's a very interesting thing, right? Because it is a way in which people are controlled in a very powerful way. I mean, if you're controlling someone's sexuality, you're controlling a very deep and personal part of them. So, you know, some people are going to say, like, you know, people like Foucault and people like that are going to argue that, you know, it's about power and religion controlling human sexuality is about power. And I think that's partially true. I think that's partially true. And I think that in terms of governments, that's also partially true. And at the same time, there's this other way in which human sexuality, because it is such a powerful thing, it has to be kind of like managed right so in a sense you kind of end up controlling it because you're trying to have a society and you're trying to maximize that society's ability to function so the way in which it's controlled can vary that's pretty obvious right and look how much it's changed in the west in the last hundred years 50 years right it's a very plastic thing it changes but it is still front and center in terms of control right now, right? I mean, it's politically speaking, right, on both sides. The fight is about how to control it, you know? Yeah, yeah, I, I think, you know, just one thing that really strikes me about the whole situation, though, is just you, know, you have to kind of exercise a certain sort of caution when you're talking about trying to control or limit immutable aspects of people's being, right? There is something to be said about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So if you remember, right, I mean, in the Republic, Socrates paints this picture of the good life where they're just leading a very simple and basic life. And if people are in a situation where they're leading a simple and basic life, you're not kind of seeking, desiring for material things and other things and you're just living um, a life, like the Taoists would say, in line with the Tao, then these kinds of issues aren't going to come up. You're not going to have a need for these kinds of rules. These things aren't really going to be an issue. And, you know, it, it is very interesting that as time goes by, you know, certain things become more or less important. 
you know, if you make something super important, if it becomes like political cause and there are all these ideas attached to whether or not it's good or bad, and then people have all these things they bought into on both sides, now it is an issue. But that's kind of like once the condition has already fallen into this like state where it's like hopelessly confused and you know there are all these power strings attached to things and things are being pulled in different directions and people have their political identity affiliated and attached to ideas and concepts and they're being pulled in different directions and they're fighting against other people that are being pulled in different directions and now it's kind of at a point where you're not going to be able to just <laughs> live the simple life and and just yeah. and just be so yeah it's a very interesting thing Okay, so I'll just read another quote. There is a dishonor in being overcome by the love of money or of wealth or of political power, whether a man is frightened into surrender by the loss of them or having experienced the benefit of money and political corruption is unable to rise above the seductions of them. For none of these things are of permanent or lasting nature. Not to mention that no generous friendship ever sprang from them. There remains then only one way of honorable attachment, which custom allows in the beloved. And this is the way of virtue. So here we kind of come full circle to some of the stuff we were talking about a little while ago. And one of the things to notice here is that now we're talking about love of material things and we're talking about love of power and wealth, right? So now we're not talking about love of other people and we're not talking about the love of, a, of another person's soul, which is what we started with. So now the idea is really expanding. And at the same time, it's contracting, right? Because here we get this idea in the last sentence we just read, that the only actual honorable attachment, the only thing that you can really love purely is the way of virtue, right? And so this is a very interesting idea, right? So the only thing you can really love is the good, the beautiful, the true, and that obviously is Plato. Now, what's interesting about this is that a lot of times people say, well, look, this doesn't make any sense because people love bad people all the time. And they'll say either, you know, this girl that likes a bad guy or this guy likes a bad girl or this guy likes a bad guy or whatever it is, right? And so people fall in love with the sort of bad guy or bad girl, right? And so what's happening there, according to Plato, is not that you're actually loving the bad person. You're loving the good qualities that bad person has. So for example, you fall in love with a gangster. Why do you love a gangster? Well you actually don't love the bad parts of the gangster. You actually love the good parts, which is that that person might have a lot of courage. That person might have a lot of loyalty. That person might give you a feeling of security and might give you a, a feeling of power. So there is a lot of other stuff going on under the surface when we when we fall in love with someone or something. It's not so clear that people aren't actually kind of always loving the good and just being confused about what the good is, which is something we've already talked about plenty. But it's also true of, of these, these kinds of loves. Just a quick thought about that. So do you think that for humans, as we live in a world that in our own personal life, you know, everything's always changing. And obviously, you know, he's talking about the only thing to really love is virtue, the good, which is unchanging, right? Which is, could be another reason why we gravitate towards gods or the idea of gods or whatever because it's also generally unchanging do you think that love is really our medium to kind of connect with the good in one way 
right? Obviously there could be multiple, but do you think that that's why love is maybe so powerful and because it kind of enters in all aspects of our life because it's our way to kind of communicate or to reach the good through passion or emotion? Right, it's a great question. And it's going to come up when Socrates talks about how he learned about love. And it's going to come up a little bit later in the symposium, but we'll just talk about it now for a little bit. The fundamental nature of reality, and this goes to the very beginning of this discussion when they were saying that love was the first God, no love is a new God, no love is a first God, love came before chaos and the earth. So why would love come first like that? Well, the pre-Socratics, some of the pre-Socratic philosophers thought that love was the power that brought about the universe. So there were basically love and then hatred. Right? So those are the two powers, fundamental powers. And so it sounds kind of silly when you, when you hear that initially, but actually what we're talking about is the power of attraction and repulsion. And if you look at the fundamental theories about the nature of reality, they involve those kinds of powers, right? So like gravity is a power of attraction, right? And so the whole universe can be explained by that power of attraction. And that's one way of thinking about love, right? And so we also talk about uh, hydrophilic and lipophilic things in the body, you know, so when we look at a basic membrane, there's hydrophilic and lipophilic organizations of the basic elements of the body. And that's saying basically loving water or loving oil. And so that's where that stuff creeps in, right? So those are old ideas, very old ideas. And so love being the kind of, this kind of like force, right? So that's one idea. Another idea is that love is something that only exists when the lover, the person doing the loving, is incomplete. And what I mean by that is imperfect. So in order for love to occur, there has to be a lack. So this is, this is something that isn't clear yet, but will be clear by the end of the symposium. And so to kind of answer your question, right, we've got to think about that too, that it is a way for the lacking to relate to the perfect. And it is a way for the mortal to relate to the immortal. So in terms of loving the gods, right, that is basically that idea, right? So loving the gods is like taking it, abstracting from the basic nature of love, and then recognizing that what you're actually doing is loving perfection, loving ultimate goodness. That's your natural state, actually, all the time, but you don't really realize it. And so when you worship, let's say, right, and you're loving God or something like that, you're basically doing that in kind of a pure form, right? You could argue, at least. <laughs> An argument can be made that that's kind of like a pure form of that in a kind of a way that's kind of become a ritual, right? When you talk about religious worship. So religious worship is like a ritualized version of some basic recognition that those who lack need to love that which doesn't lack. And now what's interesting about this is that that implies that love, if it does require a lack, actually can't be a god. Right? So it's going gonna, it's gonna to turn out part of the conversation here is really, I mean, part of the, the background of this conversation that we've been talking about is that actually 
God can't love anything because God is already perfect. So God is not actually loving anything. Humans and other beings that are incomplete and imperfect are the ones that do the loving and are the ones that desire things. So just think about the nature of desire. Desire occurs when we want something we don't have. So that's not going to happen for something that has everything. So that's, I don't know if that fully answers your question, but yeah, it does. That's, that's wonderful. So what else does he have to say to close out on his speech? So I'll just read another little quote here. So he says, For when the lover and beloved come together, having each of them a law, and the lover thinks that he is right in doing any service which he can do to his gracious loving one, and the other that he is right in showing any kindness which he can to him who is making him wise and good, the one capable of communicating wisdom and virtue, the other seeking to acquire them with a view to education and wisdom, when the two laws of love are fulfilled and meet in one, then and then only may the beloved yield with honor to the lover. So here we're talking about that mentor-mentee relationship that we were kind of alluding to earlier, right? So here the idea is that real love is basically something that occurs through this kind of instruction where you're imparting wisdom to someone else. And that's the purest form of, of love. And so this is interesting, right? Because it goes right back to this idea that we hear Socrates talk about sometimes that the best possible thing in life is a good philosophical conversation. And it doesn't get any better than that. And whenever Socrates starts talking about life after death, he starts talking about this idea that he's going to be able to have lots of good conversations with wise people when he's dead. <laughs> so that's his idea of heaven, right? So, you know, his idea of heaven isn't seven vestal virgins or something like that. His idea of heaven is you know, a great philosophical conversation. And so I think this is kind of a, a similar idea here, that a real expression of love, a pure and wholesome expression of love is this kind of a relationship. So, I mean, I think it's pretty interesting. It certainly is. It certainly is. So from there, we have Eryximachus who steps in to give his speech. And he begins by stating that Pausanias made a good start, but he'd like to pick up where Pausanias left off. And he begins by stating that there's a sort of double love. There is an honorable and a dishonorable, like Pausanias. And it's not merely an affection of the soul towards the fair or anything else, but it's found in the bodies of all animals and all productions of Earth. We should probably say that he is a physician, so he takes kind of a medical angle at love. And so he said this is the conclusion he's learned through his own practice of medicine. He states, quote, I learn how great and wonderful and universal is the deity of love whose empire extends over all things divine as well as human. So again, the universal point that love is universal, it's, you know, it permeates everywhere. He then says, quote, there are in the human body these two kinds of love, which are confessedly different and unalike. And being unalike, they have loves and desires which are unalike, and the desire of the healthy is one, and the desire of the diseased is another. So too, in the body, the good and the healthy elements are to be indulged. In this, the art of medicine consists, for medicine may be regarded generally as the knowledge of the loves and desires of the body and how to satisfy them or not. This is a really interesting point to say that the love of the body is essentially the practice of medicine. And just as Pausanias was alluding to, there are kind of noble loves and non-noble or evil loves. Similarly, there is good medicine, which would make you better, or there's bad medicine, which could be akin to something like poison. He then goes on to say that, like all things, too much love will cause problems, and it's not a good thing to have too much love. 
And this is a really interesting point because we can actually see this not just in love, but we see this everywhere. And this actually goes back to our discussion about Aristotle and the balance, the mean, finding it between two virtues in that context. But we can see how, you know, again, a balanced life, a modest life, also what Socrates has mentioned in Plato several times before, that's really what we should aim for. He then says, quote, the course of the seasons is also full of both these principles. And when, as I was saying, the elements of hot and cold, moist and dry, attain the harmonious love of one another and blend in temperance and harmony, they bring to men, animals, and plants health and plenty and do them no harm. Whereas the wanton love, which would be like a perverted love or an imbalance in nature, getting the upper hand and affecting the seasons of the year is very destructive and injurious being the source of pestilence and bringing many other kinds of disease on animals and plants. And again, this goes beyond the human context, which I think is pretty amazing for someone who's like a doctor and it's mainly looking just within the human context. But it goes beyond that in saying that this is actually more of a universal principle that we see that if there's too much kind of even too much rain, for example, right, which can be seen as a very good thing if you're a farmer and you need it, too much of it leads to flooding and other problems. So essentially, he's arguing that love should be moderated, it should be balanced, but that good love promotes moderation and orderliness by itself. Yep, no, that's right. And it's really interesting here because this is really related to what we were just saying earlier about this idea of love is like a thing that permeates the universe and, and is this, this idea of like a force. So it functions inside of the body, it functions at the social level, it functions at the political level, it functions at the level of the universe, right? And he even talks about that, right? He, sa he says, even with the function of heavenly bodies and the seasons of the year. So that stuff is also determined by this. And so it is very interesting. And, and when I look at his conversation again, I really started thinking about Chinese medicine and the idea of five elements in the Chinese system, because there it's the exact same thing. Those elements and the harmony that's needed to balance those elements out, which is what we would call health, is a harmonious person, a person that's in harmony. And good music, we think good music is harmonious. And a good social life is harmonious. And a good political world is harmonious, even though we haven't experienced that for a while. And so, <laughs> so this idea of peace and harmony and these kinds of things being kind of evidence that love is working correctly Right. Love and hatred are kind of functioning well. They're organized correctly or something like that. That's, that's also, I think, kind of part of this idea that he's talking about here. And, and interesting, too, when he was talking about the two desires inside of the body. So there's like a desire for health, and then there's a desire to kind of deteriorate and destroy yourself, in a sense. And that's also related to some of the things we've talked about in the past in terms of reality and ultimate reality and being more or less real. And so, and also if you think about it in terms of basic nature of the universe, we've got this idea of order and chaos. And these two, the way in which things can kind of tend towards chaos or they can be ordered and organized. And it seems like, at least my own experience in life has been that, you know, if I'm loving myself correctly, I'm taking care of myself and I'm being healthy. But that's not always the case. Sometimes I don't eat well, I don't exercise, or I do other unhealthy things that are 
that I know are not going to produce a healthy result. But in the moment, it's what I want to do. In other words, it's what I'm loving at that time. So it, it is a very interesting way of thinking about it. Yeah, and it's interesting that it came up in the context of them getting super drunk the night before. <laughs> not a good health decision, right? And so in talking about doing what they're loving in the moment, right? That was something they loved in the moment, didn't love it the next day. And so now they're, you know, kind of loving to talk about love and, and that's what they're doing instead. And so just for the listeners, so we will transition to the second part of the episode as we normally do but instead of a summary this time we're going to have Glaucon go over Aristophanes and then we will discuss the rest of the speeches on the following episode and then we will have our question and summary section at that time. So Aristophanes comes into the conversation and he says, mankind judging by their neglect of him have never, as I think at all, understood the power of love. For if they had understood him, they would surely have built noble temples and altars and offered solemn sacrifices in his honor. But this is not done and most certainly ought to be done since of all the gods, he is the best friend of man, the helper and healer of the ills, which are the great impediment to the happiness of the race. Right. So one thing we can say is, you know, mankind should probably be humanity and best friend of man should be best friend of humanity. Something like that would probably be better, better way of saying it. And then going on from there, he says, the original human nature was not like the present, but different. And so this is a pretty bizarre picture he paints for us here. The sexes were not two as they are now, but originally three in number. There was man, woman, and the union of the two, having a name corresponding to this double nature which had once a real existence, but now is lost. And the word is androgynous. So here, there was a time in the past, he says, when human beings were joined together. So a man and a woman were one thing, right? And then he goes on to say, in that second place, the primeval man was round, his back and sides forming a circle, and he had four hands and four feet, one head with two faces looking opposite ways, set on a round neck and precisely alike. Also, four ears, two private members, and the remainder to correspond. He could walk upright as people do now, backwards or forward as he pleased, and he could also roll over at a great pace. So we have this bizarre picture of a human that is actually a combination of male and female in one. So it's one being that is both male and female. And so this is how people think about angels sometimes, right? Angels are not male or female, actually. And so going on, he says, terrible was their might and strength, and the, the thoughts of their hearts were great, and they made an attack upon the gods. And so here we have this classic story of powerful beings attacking the gods. And we know that in Greek thought, the gods had been displaced a couple times, right? So new gods rise up and they fight the old gods. They take over the old gods as stuff, and the old gods are kind of decommissioned or put into Tartarus or destroyed or something happens to the old gods so that their powers controlled or muted or destroyed and the new gods take over. And I mean, just a quick side note on that stuff. I mean, going back to our discussion of simulations, that kind of is another kind of bizarre little point, right? Because if a simulation occurs, it's, it's like the old gods are being replaced. 
So it's something to think about. But we'll, we can get back to that later. <laughs> <laughs> so then he says, at least after a good deal of reflection, Zeus discovered a way to fix the problem of these powerful beings attacking the gods. And so what Zeus does is he cuts them in half. So now that they're cut in half, male and female are now separated. They used to be one. They used to be one thing, but now they're separated. And so now they're constantly searching for their other half, basically, right? So they've been cut in half, and now they long to be one again. And so this is the source of this love that we have between people, right? And he doesn't think necessarily that it has to be male and female. He, he thinks it could be man and man. So it is, it is the case, though, that once you find your other half, it's like, you know, your soulmate, basically, like people talk about today, right? You found your soulmate. You found the other person that was originally your other half. And this is something that Descartes talks about stuff like this too. He talks about this idea of when you find the other person that you're supposed to be with, that that's when you really become one new, full, complete being. And this is a similar kind of idea here that we're getting from Aristophanes, right? And so then going on down from here, he says, the transposition, the male generated in the female, in order that by the mutual embrace of man and woman, they might breed and the race might continue. Or if man come to man, they might be satisfied and rest and go their ways to the business of life. So here we see just what I was saying, right? It can be a heterosexual or homosexual. So ancient is the desire of one another, which is implanted in us, reuniting our original nature, making one of two and healing the state of human beings. Each of us, when separated, having one side only, like a flat fish, is but the indenture of a human and is always looking for his other half. So pretty interesting stuff. I mean, it's an interesting idea. For sure. And it's interesting that it came up in the context of trying to understand love, right? That I guess this is a nod to, like you said, with soulmates and stuff. It's interesting how uh, it's also a myth. And obviously, we could probably guess that they likely didn't think that this was 100% true, but it's, it's some way to explain the kind of world that we exist in and the fact that we all have to admit that there is love between, you know, people regardless of their sex, right? And that love is such a strong thing, it literally is like you're almost searching for the part of you that's missing. No, that's exactly right. And this is, I think, true about Descartes, Descartes too, that... The idea itself is powerful, that you're looking for your other half and that you're a whole once, once you find this other person. And I think that you're also right that this is a myth, and we know that myth is brought into Plato on purpose when something is not necessarily the case, right? <laughs> but you want to talk about it, right? And so I think it's pretty obvious with a very small amount of reflection that unless this is true about all animals and human beings, it's unlikely that it's only true about human beings, right? Because all the animals also have male and female. So it's not going to be a reasonable idea to think that it was only true about human beings, that they were these creatures that were unisex, basically. And also, it is difficult to explain how they would procreate and be perpetual, right? <laughs> if they're in that state. So, th so there are some fundamental problems with the idea. And I think those are things that Plato would recognize about the idea. And I think the most important point there is that, just like you said, there is a, a real way in which people do feel like they're looking for their sense of meaning and oneness 
you know, when they're looking for a partner. And that's definitely most people do look at it that way. Not that that's true, but people look at it that way. <laughs>